Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 15 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm an exercise physiologist, just some work for Eat Perform, uh, my own business, Extreme Human Performance, Mindset Performance Institute, and teaching exercise for special populations and biomechanics this quarter. Oh, are you? Yeah, yeah. I we're biomechanics for a couple of years, so yeah, it's not my favorite. I mean, a lot of the strength coaches really into the biomechanics stuff. Uh, we're teaching a special pops course this spring as well. Uh, nice. I, I'm not doing that one though. I, I'm I've got strength conditioning. Um, I've got a senior thesis type thing where we kind of wrap up. You know what? What are the job prospects for exercise science grads? You know that kind of stuff. Oh, there you go. Uh, I actually have them work with clients and show pick two fitness components and kind of prove that they can in, in, improve somebody. You know, nice. Uh, I'm trying to think of everything. What else do I do? Uh, basic exercise. Just the, the oh, big class of like sixty. You know, students. That's um. That's actually one of my favorites. That in general nutrition, so or advanced nutrition. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, you know what, in fact, I've toyed and if listeners, if you're interested, email us and let us know, but I've toyed with the idea of putting, uh, at least some of the slides like on our Facebook group or something, just so we can kind of hammer down some of the basic topics, you know, in fact, here's a segue, but today's topic, uh, to, uh, after the break is going to be basic hormones, manipulating hormones. We'll have some practical applications. We don't want to just make this a, you know, a, a collegiate course you know on endocrinology but um yeah that's one of the things that we cover in basic x phys because hormones control the show i mean that's why yeah. athletes dope hormones right because yeah. they have a big impact <laughs> it works yeah they work uh anyway let's start with a little bit of news here strength and muscle sport news uh this first one this is very very new this is less than 30 days old um Molecular Nutrition Food Research. It's called Coffee Consumption Rapidly Reduces Background DNA Breaks in Healthy Humans. Results of a Short-Term Repeated Uptake Intervention Study. So this is a German paper uh, with yet another benefit, uh, I think, uh, related to the antioxidants in coffee, right? Coffee's not liquid caffeine. This is from Bakaradze. Boy, I'm butchering that. B-A-K-U-R-A-D-Z-E. Um, yeah, uh, d- December. So literally just weeks old. It says, um, let's see, we report short term kinetics on, um, this idea of reduced DNA background damage, uh, after consuming coffee. Previously, there'd been some correlational stuff, right? Where, you know, there's some relationships. It suggests that coffee might be protective, but they literally like had people drink down coffee uh, and then immediately do some very fancy assays for DNA damage, like acutely. So hmm. it says in a short-term human intervention study, we determine the effects of coffee intake on DNA integrity during eight hours. Healthy male subjects ingested coffee in 200 milliliter aliquots. 
uh, every second hour up to a total volume of 800 mils. So they drank almost a liter of coffee. Wow. Um, blood samples are taken at baseline immediately before the first coffee and then subsequently every two hours. And then the uh, DNA integrity was assayed by the Comet assay. And we're not going to get into that, everybody. I'm not that familiar with it myself. Uh, conclusion. Repeated coffee consumption was associated with reduced background DNA strand breakage, clearly measurable as early as two hours after the first sip of coffee. Uh, Wow. Now, I wanted to look up on this a little bit, so I did a little bit of digging on behalf of, well, myself and and listeners, I guess. Nature.com, and if you're not familiar with Nature, this is probably the premier journal, science journal, or certainly one of them. Um, legitimate, no reason to really question a lot of what they've got going on. I mean, you question everything, I suppose. But they have a little educational bit called Repairing Double-Strand DNA Breaks. So let me give you the whirlwind tour of this. Uh, It says the genome of a cell is continuously damaged. Byproducts of the cell's own metabolism, such as reactive oxygen species, can damage DNA uh, bases and cause lesions that can block uh, progression of replication. So organisms, of course, have evolved a lot of checkpoint mechanisms to help repair this constant threat to your DNA, right? You can't have things like chemical agents or ultraviolet light or whatever just ruin your DNA. You'd end up, end up with uh, improper cell function. You'd end up with even cancer, right? So yeah. you have all of these mechanisms, of course, to, to deal with it. It says if not repaired correctly, uh, double-strand breaks of DNA can cause deletions, translocations. Uh, and fusions in the DNA. These consequences are collectively referred to as genomic rearrangements, and they are commonly found in cancer cells. Uh, so a lot of the research that they've done with this um, is with yeast cells, es- essentially. But it basically goes on to say that, obviously, when you get your blueprint damaged, um, phenotype worsens, right? The actual physical expression uh, that would lead out of your genetic blueprint in your cells goes awry. It says, for example, if the protein responsible for step one of a linear pathway, and I think about like glycolysis, like in a mid, mm-hmm. m- you know, mid duration run or a high rep set, um, if that first step gets eliminated or damaged, the pathway will not be functional. And therefore, the phenotype, right, or the physical expression of that, like in this case, the ability to do that high rep set will be uh, worsened. So uh, this is from Christina Negrito uh, from a department of biology at Pomona College. But apparently two guys in 2015 won the Nobel Prize for their work with DNA damage and repair. Mm. So it says, why is it so important to understand that proteins involved in DNA uh, and this whole process? It says, figuring out how things work at the molecular level is important because those molecular events result in observable, measurable physical, right, phenotypical changes in an organism. And I'm not going to bore you with any more except that, you know, protecting your DNA matters and coffee really seems to do that, even literally within two hours of taking a sip. Pretty cool. Huh. That's pretty wild. Pretty cool stuff. Um, yeah, it's a little bit similar to two other quick studies I found that are similar you've talked about in the past. One of them is uh, from current uh, Farm Journal 2015, polyphenols, potential future arsenal in the treatment of diabetes from Solomon uh, et al. and a bunch of other people. And it's just a little review, but it's interesting that they're looking at, you know, things found like in blueberries, coffee, you know, apricots, eggplant, 
um, coca, green tea, you know, all these different things that they list have high amounts of polyphenols and that they may help the treatment of diabetes. And there was a similar one again in the journal Nutrients, published 2016, January 5th, so just the other day, uh, similar titled Polyphenols and Glycemic Control uh, by Kim. So looking at similar things, but this one's a little bit more uh, mechanistic. So mm-hmm. maybe some good evidence to eat a wider variety of different colors, which is one thing I've had people do, uh, eat from the rainbow. So in some clients, I've had them track, you know, did you have anything that was kind of reddish? Did you have anything that's kind of purple? Did you have mm-hmm. any greens? You know, different colors. That's kind of a good way of, of sorting the different uh, <laughs> polyphenols that show up in them. You know, and not tricks or lucky charms. <laughs> no, I was going to say the colored M&Ms and Skittles don't count. But. <laughs> Red number five, yellow number seven, yeah. whatever. <laughs> hey, I got them all. <laughs> yeah, not the same thing. No, that's cool, especially I think um, that's something that I'm dealing with being middle-aged, of course, is worsening glucose tolerance. You know, your insulin sensitivity yeah. and glucose tolerance tends to fade. And, you know, I think it's one of the significant reasons that you see people get fatter over the years. Like we've all seen that with actors on TV or a lot of people, you know, you you just don't have that same natural level of leanness. And of course, it's not just this. There's GH differences, and we'll get into hormones in a little bit, but... Um, yeah, it makes me want to have my coffee and tea, frankly. You know, they're not just vices, I think. Yeah, and that's one thing I, I think I mentioned in the past show I did for about 90 days. I measured my blood glucose with just a little glucometer each morning, and I was tracking a bunch of other stuff just to see, you know, what was going to affect it. And I was a little bit nervous because some of the measurements I got early on were like 97, 110, and then it would be like 83. Um, so, you know, some of them are you know, borderline a little bit high. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing I found that made the biggest difference actually was sleep. So if I was sleep deprived or went into a sleep dead for a few days, my blood glucose would start going up pretty dramatically. I'd replace the sleep dead and then it would actually come down quite a bit. So it would range anywhere from 75, 80 up to 110 over that 90-day period. So I thought that was actually pretty fascinating. That is fascinating, especially because I think if you don't get enough sleep, you probably get background levels of like epinephrine, adrenaline, you know, starting to cause problems. The the truth is, listeners, if you ever checked your blood sugar, I really think your blood sugar should be in the 70s or low 80s, you know, if you want to have really good glycemic control. But like you, Mike, and I've seen a lot of lifters like this, often in the 90s. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah, if you get over 105, 110, you're heading into pre-diabetes range. Yeah, you the know, 110 th- scared the piss out of me. I was like, oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is fasted in the morning, of course, not after a meal yeah. where it's going to go. But I've also noticed a lot of lifters, when they're sore, um, their muscles don't take up the blood glucose very well. And you'll see them, instead of going up after a meal to like 130 milligrams per deciliter or 140, they'll go up 160, 170. And again, you know you're starting to almost look pre-diabetic. I mean, certainly you're not very insulin sensitive at that point. So, Yeah, and I did at the end of it, once I got everything kind of back under control again, um, I did my own little oral glucose tolerance test by using uh, Vitargo Mm -hmm. because they claim that it's a fast-acting carbohydrate, and they have some really good studies to show that. I was like, huh, I wonder. So I, you know, took the measurements in the morning, slammed about, you know, 70, 80 grams of it, and literally within like 20 minutes, my blood glucose went from about 75 up to about 120. And then I expected that it was going to probably crash pretty hard after that. And it actually didn't. It just kind of slowly came down. 
um, and was kind of back to normal. With I stopped doing measurements at about, I think, an hour and a half. Um, but, hmm. yeah, so that was kind of interesting. Do you think that was a function of uh, are there some slower uh, starches in that stuff too, or do you think your body just wasn't disposing of it? I don't know. What was interesting is that I've used it a fair amount of clients, and it's always worked really well. And my fear several years ago when I first started using it is that, oh, my gosh, some of these people that are you know really insulin sensitive, it's going to spike their glucose and they're going to crash and they're going to yeah. be horrible. Yeah. And anecdotally, it's never really happened. I've only um, had a couple times where it happened and we were able to recreate it without the Vitargo. So I think it was probably fatigue or something else going on. Um, gotcha. So, yeah, I don't know. My, my thought is that it's probably not that big a dose that's you know super high that's going to overwhelm your system and if you can handle it pretty good you can probably control it and go back to normal and it's not that big of a deal um i think if you're a borderline type 2 diabetic we've got some issues with that control then yeah you may definitely see some issues at that point then so yeah and then as we'll get into you know most people are taking it before exercise and exercise has a lot of other effects too such as probably why you don't see it oh true very true yeah yeah uh, I have one more quick one here just on my list. This is from Lab Roots. I just got it, and I mentioned Lab Roots before. Uh, they're just sort of a science um, – what's the word I'm looking for? They go grab different science bits from around the web for you, and, and I just sort of – I skim what even what they provide and then find anything interesting for our listeners. But this is um, – surprise me a little. This is actually a video. I might even put it on our Facebook listeners page. Just how bad are energy drinks anyway? Um, this is brand new, uh, mm. literally less than a week old. In fact, yeah, this, is, this is two days old. Uh, but now the news blurb is new, but it's referring to a paper from JAMA, I believe, Journal of American Medical Association, that was uh, a 2015 paper, and they actually collected the data in 2013. But I don't want anybody to think that means old, right? Oftentimes you'll see data that get collected, and by the time it sees print, it's you know yeah. it's a couple years old. Uh, but here's some. Uh, let me back up. Let me read you the little intro here. This is by Zuan Fam X U A N uh, posted this. Sales of energy drinks like Red Bull, Monster, and Five Hour Energy are growing and growing fast. It's a multi-billion-dollar inter- industry, but maybe we should re-examine this stuff. Energy drinks are loaded with sugar, caffeine, and other stimulants designed to rev your body into overdrive. Along with the advertised increase in alertness, some drinkers also have reported heart and neurological uh, problems. What's scary is that these health consequences weren't confined to excess consumption. Uh, in other words, you, you know, just a regular dose potentially. It says a study by the Mayo Clinic found that even just one energy drink could impact your health over time. Please watch the video. Well, let me uh, summarize some of what I saw in the video here. Uh, the video claims, and I don't know where they get this number, uh, but 400 milligrams of caffeine is the safe amount daily. Uh, they say there's ephedrine found in many of these drinks. Now, I'm not what? sure about that one. Uh, I'm not sure about that one. Uh, it says, uh, quote, uh, emergency room visits uh, due to high caffeine and taurine have doubled in the past decade, close quote. So I don't know. I, there's nothing I don't think innately uh, scary about taurine. So I pulled the paper, you know, right? It's, it's called, um, this is by, let's see, an MD, PhD, Anna Svatikova and colleagues, again, Mayo Clinic, a randomized trial of cardiovascular responses to energy drink consumption in healthy 
adults. So again, uh, I think listeners know we like our coffee. Phil likes his monster or whatever it is that he's drinking yeah. before the gym and that sort of thing. And like you said, Mike, when you follow that up with exercise, it completely changes the hormonal picture, I think. But um, I took a look at this. Let me just summarize this. They actually fed people Rockstar, uh, one 16 fluid ounce, 480 mil can of Rockstar. Uh, they said it, uh, let's see, it contained 240 milligrams of caffeine, two grams of taurine, and extracts of guarana, ginseng root, and milk thistle. So they had them come in, they had them drink either the real rock star or an identical placebo uh, between August and November of 2013. Then they, they took blood samples and they looked at serum levels of caffeine, glucose, norepinephrine, right, noradrenaline, and then they looked at blood pressure and heart rate responses, and they did this after stressors, and I think this is interesting stuff because mm. I've, seen, I've seen this done with fish oils uh, from a different angle, but um, physical stressors, mental, and cold. So the mental stressor was the serial math tests that sometimes we hear about in research. They ask you very difficult timed math questions, and it it pisses you off, you know. Oh, yeah. And then uh, it's very frustrating. And then obviously, if you're loaded up with the rock star, then you know you're gonna, might have a different heart rate or blood pressure response or norepi response. Um, the cold test was they plunged your hand into ice water. Uh, I don't know for how long they did that. So I didn't go through this entire paper, but apparently that's what they're concerned about. That even some of the what lifters might consider subtle changes in your blood pressure or fight or flight stress hormones or, uh, you know, different cardiovascular aspects could actually lead to uh, heart damage or cardiovascular disease over time. Obviously, they're going to speculate from we've, we've warned people about this before, like taking acute data and saying, therefore, this will happen 20 <clears throat> years from now. Yeah. But uh, – whether you agree or disagree, it might be interesting. So I'll try to post that link on our Facebook page about energy yeah. drinks. I'll have to read that one because, as listeners probably know, one of my dissertation studies was actually on the effects of Monster Energy Drink, which is published in JISSN, um, looking at does it enhance uh, time trial performance, or I should say technically time to exhaustion performance. And then in the study, we also looked at uh, heart rate and heart rate variability. And I did see that uh, resting heart rate uh, did go up. Uh, we did standardize the caffeine per body weight. So that's the other thing to look at, too. If they're <clears throat> doing a, a single dose of 240, you know, what size and range of body weights do they have in subjects? Yeah. And are they seeing an effect only in the, the smaller people, right? Because their relative dose is going to be much higher. Um, interesting enough, we didn't see any change <clears throat> in heart rate variability. So, hmm. in essence, the ratio of parasympathetic to sympathetic. Um, what was not published is we actually tried to look at FMD, so flow-mediated dilation, which is a measure of how well your vessels can dilate, which may be a cardiac risk factor. And unfortunately, with that data, it was just so variable, even at baseline, that we didn't have enough subjects to really make heads or tails of anything out of it, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, it turns out FMD is very variable and healthy in subjects. You know, some people have really good, eh, some people have kind of a moderate response to begin with. So, In practical um, terms, w would that mean that some, would that explain why some people can get a pump from exercise much easier than other people? Is that Possibly. kind of similar, similar idea? Yeah, so the, the current data, they, they look at, um, we do it in the arm. And that's a surrogate for the cardiac vessels. 
So if you've got vessel damage, that's usually kind of a systemic type thing. Obviously, you can have very specific stuff happening only in the cardiac system. And if the vessels can dilate well under stress, it's actually the sheer stress, so how fast the blood is actually moving by, then you're probably at less of a risk for um, cardiac issue. And you could speculate, right, in lifters that, hmm, maybe that's good to get a better pump, right? Maybe you can get some of those vessels to dilate better. Obviously, the pump is caused because you partially have a restriction on the other end, mm-hmm. right? So you're pushing it as much blood flow, and then you're kind of holding and restricting it there, too. True, yep. yep. So, no, um, good stuff. But, yeah, so anyway, um, there's only been a couple of studies on energy drinks that have really shown much of a negative effect. Uh, one of them was an Australian one that showed a slight increase in blood pressure, I think one of the other one ones was they gave two cans of Red Bull every day for two weeks to subjects, and they showed that, hmm, your blood pressure went up at the end of that study. But it went up, not a huge amount. So it's, yeah, I definitely want to read this study. It would be interesting to see. Yeah, so much of, of what our listeners do and what you and I do, though, you know, because we're not going to you typically slam Monster or sip on one in the morning and then do nothing and then go sit at a desk, you know. Yeah. Uh, and that's just such a huge difference. You know, before we hit the record button this morning, everybody, uh, to do the show, uh, Dr. Nelson and I were talking about a lot of this, right? Exercise, there are textbooks that will actually point out that exercise affects your system uh, more than almost any other general um, stressor that you can think of. So you can do sleep changes, diet, cold. There's all these different mental issues, but exercise is very, very potent effect, like globally on hormones, uh, and that sort of thing. Redistribution of blood flow, just all kinds of things, all kinds of things. But of course, I think that's why, um, we all lift, you know, I mean, it it has measurable differences that it's going to supersede even a lot of individual differences. Even the worst heart gainer, I would think, could change somehow through training. So, Okay. Um, d- did you want to mention that one paper that yeah. we got from the- <laughs> I've got two things here from, looks like, uh, listener Hammond, I believe, which is very awesome. Thank you very much for sending that in. Uh, one of them is coffee flour is here to transform how to get caffeinated. <laughs> oh, wow. So yeah. We've talked in the past about people putting coffee into pretty much everything. Um, it says here, according to Eatery, uh, cooking par-baked green coffee beans, actually, so they're not roasted beans, uh, for a short period of time at a low temperature, according to Professor Daniel Perman, was able to create a flour filled with cholinergic acid, which we know as an antioxidant, has some potential benefits on glucose disposal in the body. And the benefits consuming green coffee beans includes reducing heart disease, diabetes, and potentially adding in weight loss, according to the article. So they're actually using the green coffee beans, hmm. yeah, which is interesting. Um, according to them, they said, yeah, you can mix it into your breakfast muffins and do get an antioxidant boost. So uh, now, would there be caffeine in the flour then? Or that's what I was trying to figure out because they're the the green coffee beans, so that we know the roasting affects the amount of caffeine. So I don't know how much is actually in the end product after you heat it and do all that kind of stuff to it. I don't know. Curious. Yeah. And then I had one other one he sent too, which is very interesting. Uh, you can get this on Amazon now. Of course, you can get pretty much everything on Amazon. <laughs> right. It's called the uh, Steam S T E E M, all in caps. Peanut butter caffeinated. Oh, my goodness. So it's caffeinated peanut butter for sustained energy. <laughs> Unreal. 
Yeah, so I thought that was <laughs> very interesting. And in the past, I've talked about my idea for uh, caffeinated toothpaste because you get the buccal delivery of caffeine. Oh, right. Mouth. And I actually went as far to, to see if I could get a patent on it, and it turns out that someone had a patent on it. It was like several years ago. And I thought was, well, what if you put like a AM and PM toothpaste, right? You put them in one tube. The AM has caffeine. The PM has like, you know, valerian or kava kava or melatonin or something. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but it turns out that the patent was recently sold about a year ago to uh, Colgate. So oh. I keep looking now on the shelves for Colgate to come out with caffeinated toothpaste, but I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they had caffeinated gum with a similar idea for the longest time. Yeah. And but I don't see that anymore, and I heard rumor that the FDA, either. the FDA kind of sat on that. But uh, if they did, I mean, I know on Amazon you can buy that military gum, and it's heavily caffeinated. Yes. So, um, in fact, I've got a researcher friend of mine at Kent State down the road, and she's always saying, "Lowry, you keep fooling around with coffee. That's not fun. Go for something, you know, exotic. Yeah, like this mucosal oral delivery with the gum and stuff. It's so fast. It gets into you so fast." And I'm like, yeah, but coffee's not boring. There's, it's, there's other cool things in coffee, you know, but I wouldn't be beyond that. I mean, I do think there's, it, that's very interesting. My wife and I were actually chewing that caffeine gum, uh, and it does. It helps concentration. It really does get into your system really quickly. Uh, and the toothpaste, I think that's super clever, actually. Yeah, there's actually a company called uh, Sprayable Energy, and they make a supposedly uh, topical delivery of caffeine water and tyrosine um supposedly and it looks like they have some pretty legit people that work for them that it they found a way to get it through the skin yeah that's tough um, we've actually looked at that before not easy well even on the show we discussed i think back in like 2011 maybe um yeah that's not easy to do because like they have caffeinated soap and stuff like that and it's right. a fun it's a fun novelty but yeah, the soap won't penetrate so yeah i actually looked at a couple of uh yeah the dermal penetration actual papers and mm -hmm. it was very low yeah yeah and accordingly they said with only those ingredients it doesn't look like they used a penetration enhancer or anything like that that it works now i'd I don't know if the FDA is going to have an issue with that. doesn't seem like they have so far, but um, maybe it's marketed just as a body spray. I don't know. Yeah, but. a lot of it has to do with how they market. I mean, I don't even think supplement companies can market things as sublingual because that's drug, you know, so they say, like, hold under the tongue instead. Yeah, they can't. Yeah. yeah. So even, like, methylated B12, if you look on the container, that's exactly what it says because of that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. well, there's the news, everybody. Cool stuff. Like, very caffeine and energy drink related. Yeah. You know, I guess this time of year, it doesn't hurt to have a little bit of that to get things going. Days are short and cold. And uh, We're going to come back from the break, and we're going to talk about some basic endocrinology, hormones, um, just an overview. I mean, in a way, we're revisiting some of these things because we've touched on these invariably. But we're going to give some practical applications about how to manipulate some of these hormones. Like when you hear about them on YouTube, you read in a magazine – like what's epi and norepi, what's thyroid, what's going on with you know insulin, which one of these has the biggest impact. Um, so we'll kind of go down basic glands and hormones and that kind of stuff and, and how we can tweak them as lifters. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you 
uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle. Oh, you poor meathead. All that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit uh, royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So, uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. <laughs> Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. <laughs> Hey, welcome back to Iron Radio. It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here with Dr. Lonnie Lowry. And we're going to do an overview on some basic hormones, also provide you some context on why it potentially matters and what can be useful for people who are lifting and exercising. That's so not just, uh, hopefully not too boring of a lecture, but actually practical for you too. Right on. Yeah. Uh so let's start with the list. These are hormones that often people hear about. Now, if you're a more advanced lifter, wait for the practical application after we give you the basic, uh, and then you can agree or disagree, right? But if you're a beginner, this might help because a lot of times I'll talk to people in the fitness industry, and they're very well read. Uh, they'll read certain articles or listen to certain things online, and they can really sound very advanced in a very narrow area. And then they'll say something 
that he makes me kind of wince, you know, as yeah. a professor. Like, oh, geez, no, that's not how that works. And, <laughs> and I, I don't sound judgmental, but you know, so that this is kind of the idea. Like, oftentimes people ask, "What's a good basic sports nutrition book?" Because I always say they're like, "Which industry book should I read?" And people always jump to stuff like Starting Strength, and you mm. know, and these these can be good resources. But I really think people need to go to a textbook and get because. It, textbooks work like building blocks. You know, they lay a foundation, then they build on that, then they build on that. And so you don't end up being able to, to talk really advanced in a very tiny area and then really be quite wrong about other things. So that's kind of the idea here with the basic hormones. So here they are. Here's the list. Uh, catecholamines. So epinephrine and norepinephrine. We're going to focus on those two. We won't focus on dopamine as much. So adrenaline and noradrenaline. Uh, number two, thyroid. Number three, insulin. Number four, testosterone. Number five, a growth hormone and IGF-1. We're going to kind of include those together, although you could arguably tease those apart. And then finally, more of a negative one in the eyes of a lot of lifters, cortisol. So uh, let's start with back up to the top of the list here. So adrenaline and noradrenaline. Uh, fight or flight hormones, right? We know that. Uh they have very short half-lives. If you almost hit somebody in a car, for example, you might get this big tingle, this huge rush. You know, your heart races, you know, blood flow, everything changes, but then it's gone. Uh, so epinephrine and norepinephrine, I think there a lot of these hormones we're going to talk about have sort of uh, good side, bad side to them. You know, uh, Dr. Nelson was just talking about not getting enough sleep. You know, and the, we started theorizing about, oh, well, maybe background levels of adrenaline start to come up, um, almost like you see with sympathetic type overtraining, you know, and that's going to mess with your blood sugar and that kind of stuff. So here's uh, when we think about epi or norepi, and you could easily tease these two apart, but we're going to kind of look at them together as fight or flight. A practical application would be just what we're talking about. I'm using caffeine, coffee, strong tea before you go work out. Uh, that will get that those levels up. I've measured that in the lab myself, and you can see them go up uh, within about an hour, uh, hour to 90 minutes after having strong coffee, uh, caffeine, that kind of stuff. Um, I will say this. Exercise has such a m stronger impact on these things, it's not even funny. Like you'll see a, a, a slight increase in epi or norepi after you have the coffee or the energy drink or whatever. But once people start exercising, even light weights, whoosh, right off the top of the chart, you actually have to change the scale on the graph. Yeah. So huge differences in that. But that might be one of mine that if you, you know, if you want to ramp up your fight or flight system, um, something caffeinated or something before you work out, I don't think it's going to have the same long-term ramifications like we were, we were just talking about before the break you know, where people have a increased cardiac risk because they try to jack those things all the time. Then they sit on their ass at a desk. Yeah. Yeah. Those things in physiology are designed for movement. So I often wonder what happens when we decouple from that, right? So fight or flight by definition is some type of massive movement. And a lot of people have the opposite, right? Their boss is yelling at them. So they're sitting in a chair all stressed out to no end. And other hormones are going bonkers to try to prepare them for movement, but the movement never comes. <laughs> oh, that's a really now good point. Kind of yeah, decoupled these systems that are supposed to be coupled together. So with the clients, I've even said, hey, if you can even get up and just just walk around as much as you can. Granted, it's low level movement. You know, you can't really 
get up and you start sprinting down the halls in your business, they're going to look at you like you're a little bonkers. But even low-level movement seems to help, you know, kind of get them a little bit back on track and try to get those things kind of back coupled to where they should be again. That's clever. Yeah. I, I never really thought about about it that way. But, yeah, your body is really gearing up to, like, run from a lion, yeah. <laughs> you know, not not sit there and just grit your teeth about a pissy boss, you know, and, yeah. and not move. A great book on that is uh, called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by uh, Dr. Robert Sapolsky. So really cool book. Right on. Okay. Uh, I should also quickly, before we move on, mention that there's a very obvious in the literature, and, I, again, I can see this in the lab too, strong correlations between uh, epinephrine and norepi and um, muscle force output, you know, yeah. uh, power and force and that sort of thing. And there's even suggestions that people over time training can change your response to those things, and that's part of the reason the people that have the most of these hormones or the most – uh, ability of them to work because if you overtrain they don't work as well you start to get insensitive to them but uh that yeah the better that that system works the stronger you probably are yeah and two quick things on that i agree with that is one thing i've noticed to myself and clients is that if you have a set amount of caffeine you know one cup of coffee or whatever and you still feel like you want to crawl in a hole and die then you probably don't need to train that day your solution is not to have three cups of coffee for the next two days um, so I've noticed that if your response yeah, is starting yeah. to drop off, you're probably pushing that overreaching a little bit more. Could be lack of sleep, could be other stuff too. Because um, I've made that mistake in the past. I'm oh like, yes, well, sir. Have two cups then. That'll be fine. Yeah. Well, yep. Pay a price for that. Absolutely. The thing I got from uh, Cal Dietz is that if you have a day that's maybe more of an off day or feeling you know kind of tired, is to do a high isometric hold. So he'll take like a trap bar for trap bar deadlifts. Uh, set it up in the power rack so that the pins are about you know, two to three inches, four inches from lockout. So you'll bend down, you'll slowly come up against the pins, and then you'll do an isometric against the pins at a top position, you know, for around you know five seconds for just a couple reps. And his theory is that it you know increases a lot of those hormones, epi, norepi, and all that kind of stuff. But there's really no mechanical trauma. There's not a lot of work being done. Um, so I played around with that a little bit on just an off day and you, you tend to feel a little bit better, but it's not enough volume or anything that's going to beat you up. That's going to, you know, severely impair your recovery either. Hmm, so. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I th the, uh, these hormones are very much a link between your nervous system and your, and your hormonal system. You know, it's, we can't, yep. it's so hard to look at these things in a vacuum, you know, that's so yeah. Okay, uh, next on our list, thyroid. Uh, I think this has gotten less attention probably compared to like a lot of the pre-workouts and energy drinks, which prank, frankly focus on adrenaline and noradrenaline. But thyroid, uh, I think from a practical perspective, thyroid drives your basal metabolic rate, I think for a lot of our purposes. I mean, it's a permissive hormone. It helps other hormones do their thing. There's lots of things, cool things about thyroid. But um, I would suggest that one of the biggest things I've seen in athletics is – uh, if people under eat in their, or even if they over exercise compared to their food intake and they're in a negative calorie balance, their thyroid, their conversion, uh, uh, to the more active kind of thyroid, you have two major kinds of thyroid in your body. And again, I could go into more detail and I don't want to do that right now, but T4 and T3, you have a lot more T4, right? 
uh, thyroxine. You have much less T3, triiodothyronine, but T3 is many times more bioactive. So your body converts the plentiful T4 into T3 so you can have you know, energy and uh, metabolic drive. Um, And when people are in a negative calorie balance, that conversion in T3, there's some enzymes involved there, uh, just really doesn't happen very well. And, you you know, a lot of people, they take Synthroid now, which is a T4 preparation. Back when I was a kid, a lot of people, they gave people um, uh, Cytomel, yeah, which is a T3 prep, which is very strong. And I think they've gotten away from that because, I mean, too much thyroid, thyroid storms, all (laughs) kinds of scary. I mean, that sounds dramatic. It is. But thyroid... It also has interactions like thyroid will increase epi and norepi receptor number or sensitivity, stuff like that. So it's not fight or flight in the usual way. It's more of a background general drive kind of thing. But over dieting or too much exercise compared to calorie intake, you could end up with a lower T3. And I'll say this too. Uh, if you talk to an endocrinologist, there's a whole bunch of other things involved, uh, thyroid stimulating hormone, TSH, and there's all these different levels. And you've got to have somebody look at your thyroid levels who know what they're looking for. Yeah. Uh, or you might get some bad advice from like a general practitioner, like, oh, no, your thyroid levels are fine. That's not your problem. Uh, yeah, so they'll, they'll normally run just the TSH, which is an okay, you know, basic screen. But like you said, if there's something really going on, you know, seeing an endocrinologist and someone who knows what they're doing is helpful. And then the other thing, too, to talk to your doctor is to ask them about, especially if you're a woman, uh, an iron test. Because if you're really low on iron, that can mess up some of the conversion, possibly from T4 to T3. So you, if your iron's low, the physician may consider having you take a supplemental iron, get your iron back to normal, and then maybe retest your thyroid and, and see if that was one of the issues. Yeah, we have a fair n- number of uh, female listeners, so that, that's good advice. Plus, not having enough iron is going to affect oxygen transport and use yeah, in cells. Feel like poo. Yeah, you're just going to be <laughs> so run down. Oh, yeah. In fact, Similar it, yeah, in, in sports nutrition setting, uh, when I've worked with some big D1 schools, especially the women, I would look for two things. You know, are, are they – is their carbohydrate intake really low? You know, are they low glycogen, yep. low carb? And then what kind of – are they eating meats? Are they eating things that provide iron? Uh, you know, and, you know, what's what do they look like with, with a more sensitive iron uh, test? You know, like a transferrin saturation, right, or, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, Ferritin, serum ferritin. Um, Okay. So thyroid, uh, again, uh, don't over-diet maybe. Uh, Insulin. I think we're in agreement here over the years, Dr. Nelson, that insulin, it may be one of the the biggest drivers of of this whole list of hormones that people try to manipulate. I mean, insulin is, uh, is huge. So maybe explain to everybody why. Yeah, so insulin is sort of classically thought as your anabolic or your storage hormone, right? So everyone's heard about, you know, high insulin, you get fat. And it is true that higher levels of insulin can uh, increase fat storage. I personally like to think of insulin as more of a fuel selector switch, which I think I might have stole from Jeff Volek. Um, So when your insulin levels are high, it's actually pushing your body to use more carbohydrates. Granted, you could also be storing them more as fat, too. And the reverse, if insulin is low, it's actually pushing your body to use more fat. So if you're in like a fasted state, it's pushing you from a metabolic standpoint to use more fat at that point. 
Um, if you look at the literature, I think that's a little bit more of an accurate view from everything from crossover effect to, you know, studies where they take an IV and they jam a bunch of insulin in one arm and they jam a bunch of glucose in the other arm. So like your clamp type studies. Um, but I think a lot of insulin is also very <clears throat> misunderstood, um, because obviously calories in matter and all that kind of thing too. Um, people who are type two diabetic, what happens is they kind of lose their sort of metabolic flexibility from both ends of the spectrum. So they initially have problems with carbohydrate metabolism. So their body says, hey, we'll fix that. We'll just jam out a whole bunch more insulin. And over time, they become less sensitive to the insulin. But what is now getting more appreciation is because their background levels of insulin are so sky high, they actually have problems with the use of fat as a fuel source. So they're losing the ability to use fat, and they're losing the ability to use carbohydrates. And they get stuck in this really, really fine range, and they've kind of lost control of their system. So to me, that's a little bit more of a my biased, sort of accurate way of looking at insulin. Yeah, I think uh, like when I used to teach dietetics students, in dietetics, there's this very simplistic notion, at least at the you know beginner and intermediate level, that uh, insulin is a carbohydrate-only hormone. You know, as opposed to a storage hormone. And I think if I have a practical tip here, uh, I have moved over the years into a similar position with Dr. Nelson, actually. And people can disagree all they want. Uh, I'd be happy to discuss it Uh, because, you know, hey, new information, maybe I'll change the conclusion. I mean, that's what good science is about. But uh, I think we live in a very high starch, high sugar, high insulin world here in the West you do not see that to such an extent in leaner cultures like in Japan and that sort of thing. I mean, they might have white rice, but, you know, they're uh, all of those um, cans of, you know, green tea and stuff and all of those vending machines and stuff. A lot of that stuff yeah. is unsweetened drinks and, uh, you know, unsweetened drinks. And I, I mean, unsweetened. I don't mean artificially sweetened. Nothing. Th- that stuff would not sell here at all. Yeah. It, it even would sit when there. we were there, they don't eat that much rice. They have rice, but it's not like, you know, giant cereal bowls full. <laughs> no, good point. No, that's a really good point. So I would suggest practical tip is we're under too much insulin all the time. And insulin, although acutely, it will drive your blood sugar right into your tissues. But in it is a storage hormone. It can cause, you know, Jekyll and Hyde, right? It's both fat and muscle gain over time. And we get that bodybuilder mentality. I certainly do. Got to eat every two hours. Got to eat every two hours. And, um... So even though we might be eating cleaner, quote unquote, than the average person, uh, we're in a always high insulin state. And I think uh, re- getting some relief once a week, like if you really want to lean down, yeah. do the low carb thing or even a, a semi fast. You could do it once a week. I mean, you'd have to do it often enough. It'd be meaningful. You would have to do it very often. Uh, and a lot of people like, I'm in my bulking phase. I'd never do that. Well, then don't. But there are times when you're trying to lean down. I think we've got to reprogram ourselves a little. That high insulin state slowly changes, you know, gets your DNA to start to crank out. Hey, here, send out the message for more storage enzymes, uh, fat building enzymes, that kind of stuff. Because again, like Dr. Nelson said, it's a storage hormone. So we've got to get out from under this huge insulin burden that we seem to be under all the time. Um, and uh, I don't know. I to me, a practical application would be to you know try a little fasting or, or low carb uh, for certain periods at least, and get your body reprogrammed. 
Yeah, and I also look at it from a, a two things, a leverage standpoint. So one, we know insulin is highly under our dietary control. A lot of the other hormones are not mm-hmm. directly under dietary control. Right so on. we can do things to affect it. And then if we look at what are the opposite effects of it, so what are the other hormones? Um, so you can, we'll go down the list, right? So growth hormone, cortisol, epi, norepi. There's a whole list of hormones that do the opposite of insulin, but the body is also very redundant. There's really not any other hormones that do what insulin does. You could, I would argue that maybe leptin on a long-term scale possibly, but that still doesn't do the same acute things that insulin does. So to me, that tells me that insulin's probably really important. We probably don't understand everything yet, but whenever you see only one hormone and you've got like five or six other things that are doing the opposite of it, exactly, that yep. makes me think that that one is probably pretty darn important. Po- pretty potent, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those counter-regulatory hormones. Gosh, you, you're right. You could go down the list. Cortisol, glucagon, yep. epi and norepi, you know, geez. Uh, yeah, and so those those counter-regulatory hormones would tend to raise your blood sugar, of course. And again, that's because insulin is so potent at dropping it. Yeah. Um, you know what? To prove it to everybody, if you've ever been uh, – had like some insulin overshoot, you know, like Mike was talking about, have Vitargo or you have like uh, brown potato or white rice or something or, you know, you spike your blood sugar and then it crashes so far that you start getting sort of shaky, sweaty – you know, your blood sugar gets down into the 60s maybe or even below, yeah. uh, you can feel the, you know, those, like the adrenaline. That's probably epinephrine that you're feeling. Your body will pull out the sledgehammer. I've always called epinephrine of all those counter-regulatory hormones, kind of the sledgehammer because that will bring your blood sugar back up. It will fight really viciously with insulin to get your blood sugar back up. But yeah, yeah insulin's powerful stuff. And anecdotally, I've, I don't recommend listeners ever do this, but you can, I've tried at certain times to see what makes me hypoglycemic, um, just to see. <laughs> okay. And I've tried huge amounts of carbohydrates, no, no drugs or anything like that. And if I have enough sleep and my stress is pretty well maintained, I, I really can't do it with any dietary approach. But if my sleep starts getting really low, my stress level gets really high, um, then I find that you know, high amounts of carbohydrates or long periods of time without them, I can actually start to become hypoglycemic. So my blood glucose would get down to like, you know, 65 or somewhere in there. So, yeah. Yep. Uh, one quick story before we go on to uh, testosterone. Uh, I actually knew a guy once. Um, I'll just call him Oliver. Uh, he, <laughs> uh, he was very interested in insulin doping uh, but not eating carbohydrates, right? So the typical oh, bodybuilder no. mentality with insulin would be that you got to eat about 10 grams of carbohydrates for each unit of insulin that you inject. That's kind of a rule of thumb. Uh, but this is very dangerous stuff. If you take too much yes. insulin and you don't get the right amount of carbohydrate, um, you know, and again, this never made a lot of sense to me because as you pointed out, Mike, insulin's under automatic control. You can tickle right. your pancreas and make it crank out insulin. So what he tried to do though was provide only protein, large amounts of protein, and inject insulin. So no carbohydrates oh, afterwards. Wow. And I'm like, oh my God, you you could slip into <laughs> such low blood sugar, you would just slip into a coma and die, yeah, you know? And die. <laughs> yeah, so like there's a side effect, dead, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and it, it was interesting that he would think, you know, that you because of high protein doses, a lot of that can actually 
eventually, you know, it's glucogenic. It can lead to more blood sugar and gluconeogenesis could save your, save your ass kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, mostly when bodybuilders do that, they're doing that in a cocktail with growth hormone and testosterone and other things, but you've, they are very cautious. I would, I would hope about eating carbohydrates in the, you know, immediate, literally within 15 minutes and then out to about two or three hours, even for something like an old school humulin R, you know, which is a fairly quick acting kind of hormone, but uh, wow. Yeah. And you hear the, the horror stories of people who got the wrong type of insulin. Like you said, there's different types of insulin in terms of how fast or how long it takes them to act and then mistime their carbohydrates. And I heard of one guy who almost died doing that. And yeah, yeah very scary crazy stuff. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Next on our list is testosterone. I think testosterone gets exaggerated on one level. I think it's the king of hormones. You know, yeah. I mean, since what the 1930s when it started get be spread in athletics and that sort of thing, I mean, it does amazing things. We know that it enhances strength, it enhances muscle mass by re, mostly, I guess, by reducing muscle breakdown. But however, it's working. Um, it can be amazing stuff. Uh, athletes have fallen into a more is better approach with that, but it's worth saying that if you look at testosterone on a thousand point scale, so like nanograms per uh, deciliter, I got to remember the units here exactly, but um, that's right. It you know moving up or down 150 points like you can do uh, yeah. by eating properly and that kind of stuff, it's not going to make you look like the cover of a magazine. I will say this. Um, I've checked my T levels over the years, and you can feel a difference. Like if you're down around uh, clinically low, like 300, I mean 300 on a thousand scale or less, sometimes 250-ish, that's when physicians will literally think about putting you on like a gel or a replacement hormone. Uh, But the difference between 300 and like 600 or 800, hell yeah, yeah, you'll be. I think you'll feel a difference in robustness, maybe tissue hydration, you know, stuff like that, recovery ability. Uh, but will it dramatically change your physique in that physiologic normal range? No, probably not. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. when athletes dope testosterone, they are so far off that thousand point scale. They might be oh, 4,000, yeah. 8,000. <laughs> I mean, crazy. Uh, it's, you know, it's a kind of thing a regular uh, endocrinologist couldn't even process. Or like, I don't even know what to do with that, with that number, you know. And that's what we have to understand. So much higher. Uh, my practical tip for testosterone is basically eat. Uh, the hormone that tickles your gonads and makes them secrete testosterone, uh, LH, luteinizing hormone, it will all but go away if you fast for very, very long periods. And that's, I think, why when we talk about fasting for brief periods, I'm not a big fan of real long fasts yeah. uh, because there goes your LH. Now your testosterone levels start to fall. So I would say mostly uh, eat, you know. Um, I don't know if you have any specific tips for the androgen side of things, Mike. Yeah, and two quick things. So I looked a a couple of years ago, I did an article for uh, T Nation, and I was trying to figure out that if you're in the normal range, right, so like the smack in the middle or if you're kind of low or high normal, is there any data to show that there's any difference in strength or hypertrophy? And I could only find one study, which is by Bashin, who's got a lot of the really cool testosterone research from years ago, and it was in humans. There's a bunch of animal data, which is suspect. And they chemically castrated this group of guys and then gave them back supplemental testosterone mm. and put them in different ranges, so low, medium, and high. And they didn't really see any difference in terms of um, hypertrophy or strength, if I remember right. Um, but again, these are people that they put back into a normal range. They were not putting them at super physiologic levels. Yeah. There is data that if you are very low, 
I had mine tested probably five years ago when I was doing my PhD and stuff, and it was 230. <laughs> oh, damn, yeah. Which is horrible. And I'm like, well, I know the problem is I sleep five hours a night. I drink too much coffee. I'm stressed out of my mind. So I'm going to wait until I fix that stuff before I look at anything else. Um, and then I had it checked again a year ago, and it was uh, 450. Okay. So, yeah, so. low sleep, uh, booze, uh, yep. and not eating will really drive it down like 200 points, Fast. I would think, would be possible. You know, yeah, yeah. So, and then um, last thing on that too, that there's some studies from Kramer that have shown that if you do squats, you do see a bump in acute levels of testosterone. Um, but follow-up studies from uh, Dr. David West from Stu Phillips Lab, they've done a couple shows that that bump in testosterone doesn't seem to do much for uh, hypertrophy or strength. Um, Ron said's lab in Denmark had one study that kind of disagreed, and then Stu took their data and ran it through the same analysis that he did and showed no difference. So it doesn't appear that those acute, which are very fast uh, changes, make that much of a difference. It's probably more the background level of where you're at that makes the biggest change. Yeah, and I've also heard, I don't know how theoretical versus actual phys it is, but uh, when you do have that pump, and like you said, some of that pooling of, of fluid... Yeah. Uh, it, you know, could actually bathe those cells in a hyper-concentrated amount, you know, of certain hormones, uh, whether that's testosterone or uh, like GH or something or IGF-1, which is coming up next. Um, it's an interesting idea, though, you know, that you could sort of pool and concentrate hormones. And I think that's part of the reason for the, that catsuit training, that occlusion training is supposed to work. I'm not 100% sure, but... Yeah, so the blood flow restriction stuff is kind of from hypertrophy from the mechanism. You're looking at sort of metabolic uh, altercations and exactly that, that you're getting more of those metabolites to stay in the area. And that could be even local stuff like myokines that are released directly from the muscle. Um, there's some pretty good data now showing that even 30% of a load when you use like a blood flow restriction type thing, so you've got a band or a pressure cuff, um, does equate to heavier load training in terms of if you go out over several weeks. Um, so it may be a way of, you know, if you're really, really beat up and you don't want to do anything, but your goal is more arm hypertrophy, you know, maybe a few sets of some blood flow restriction on an off day may be beneficial. Yeah. To me, it, it, you'd look so silly. It would seem weird. Uh, it and, does look weird. And it yeah. does scare <laughs> me. It does scare me just a little that people might overdo that in some way and end up with some kind of tissue damage. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, and I'm working on getting uh, Dr. Jeremy Linoki on the show, hopefully in 2016, because he's a blood flow restriction researcher excellent. and has done a lot of super cool stuff on that. That's, so that's he's awesome. the man there. Perfect. Yeah, I'd love to uh, dive into that stuff. Okay, uh, growth hormone and IGF-1. Um, GH comes from your pituitary gland. Um, the the old school, you know, basic thinking is that growth hormone itself uh, mostly acts through insulin-like growth factor 1, IGF-1, although we know that it's not just as simple as, oh, the GH comes from your pituitary. Oh, it tickles your liver to make IGF-1. Tissues in general uh, you have a, a widespread ability to generate IGF-1, and all of the effects of GH are not through IGF-1 necessarily. Growth hormone, I think if I boil down what I understand about the literature, is that GH does amazing lipolytic things as far yeah. as body fat reduction. When you see bodybuilders that are really huge nowadays compared to the old days, I mean, uh, you know, to the, to the Frank Zanes, et cetera. Yeah, and they also have no body fat. That's GH uh, oftentimes at work. Uh, 
the more anabolic growth effects are probably mediated through IGF-1. And again, I'm grossly oversimplifying this, and maybe we'll have some endocrinology guys on the show. But uh, growth hormone and IGF-1 are often used, I can tell you, with pro bodybuilders in cocktails. So they'll take a little of each or maybe a lot of each along with testosterone, huge doses, multi-gram doses of testosterone and other androgens. Uh, and the effect is ridiculous. I mean, yeah. it's synergistic. I, I spoke to Kevin Yurashevsky once, who's a very famous growth hormone oh, yeah. researcher, one of the first guys to give GH to healthy men. Uh, a lot of institutional review boards wouldn't even like to hear about that study. Uh, but he took healthy guys, he put them on GH, and he was saying, yeah, you retain nitrogen, but a lot of it seemed to be non-skeletal muscle, so almost like organ mass. And it sort of meshes with what you see in the pro bodybuilders. You know, the huge, they're ripped. You can see their abs, but they have the distended belly. And when you start to think, God, could that just be huge organ mass? Gross, you know. Uh, and it, that does tend to happen to people over time who use GH, you know, for the first year or two, three maybe in their bodybuilding career, they're ripped, they're huge, it's amazing, but invariably their guts get bigger and bigger. And I don't mean flabby, but bigger and bigger and distended and that kind of stuff. And yeah, you know, yikes. But I also, after a conference, I was chatting with him because he came from my lab like a generation before me. And he said there was, uh, we were talking about pro bodybuilders and the abuse of some of these hormones. And he was saying there was an older guy who had just ridiculous hypertrophic response to the GH, and nobody else really was. Wow. And huh. he, upon questioning him, uh, he did not divulge that he was on testosterone replacement therapy. So huh. the GH they gave him clearly had like a synergistic one plus one equals five, you know, uh, effect on his muscle mass. And I th that really meshes with what I think you see with a lot of the bodybuilders and that kind of stuff too. I don't want to get into a discussion just on doping and how much bodybuilders use. I've seen regional level guys take like four IUs every other day. It's very expensive. The storage is different from general, you know, anabolics. And there's a lot of issues that go on with that, but maybe we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in the future as well. Yeah. Uh, any thoughts large, from you? Yeah. The large distended abdomens have been theorized that, you know, there's been some other professional bodybuilders who are retired now who have come out and said that they theorize that it's also because of the testosterone, the GH, and that it wasn't until they added insulin that they saw that actually got substantially worse. Okay, yep, so yep. who knows? I mean, you can't pull research studies on the doses any of these people are using, so it's, For it's sure. kind of guessing and that type of thing. But, um, yeah, and GH also has some good um, sort of non-muscle tissue benefits, especially to connective tissue. So there's a lot of professional sports players that will use exogenous testosterone, but they'll also use growth hormone, not necessarily for the lipolytic effects, but because it helps with their soft tissue to try yeah. to reduce injuries there too. Okay. Yep. Uh, a quick practical tip with GH. Um, as we age, we really lose the effect. Uh, the first study I was ever in, I was in the 20 something group and we got this big surge of GH with morning exercise. We were just running on a treadmill and the guys in the 30 something group, um, a sad little blip of GH from exercise. <laughs> so exercise is a very potent hormonal stimulus, but GH, uh, just, you know, it, it ebbs with age and even the exercise response. So I would, uh, I guess I would theorize or speculate that it becomes more and more important to rely on that uh, post-sleep GH surge. And yeah. this might be slightly different from women uh, with men. Um, but uh, about 90 minutes after sleep, you know, you typically hear that there's a growth hormone surge. And uh, 
maybe not eating for two hours before you go to bed might actually help with that because we know that high blood sugar and even high blood fats uh, could inhibit some of that GH response. And if that's where most of your GH is coming from during the day, if you're a middle-aged guy, uh, maybe you don't want to mess with that as much. Uh, it, you know, again, it's, it's very theoretical. Uh, but again, when we talk about how lean 20-somethings are versus 40-something guys, uh, I, I really think the GH is part of that, you know. So. Yeah, and it's also interesting too that the usually the younger people don't sleep as well either. And I've just measured my sleep with a basis watch and also a, a ZO unit in the past. And if I can get to bed earlier, especially now in winter where it gets darker sooner, um, I get substantially more uh, deep sleep as compared to the same amount of sleep but going to bed later, which is pretty interesting. Right. You know, I was just talking to a colleague about that. Uh, he was actually being asked by a school system that they want to start have later start times for their students oh. so they can sleep more. Uh, but we're, I was saying, no, I, I can't cite a paper right now, but I'm almost certain that there's data uh, regarding, you know, get to bed. You've got to go to bed earlier. You can't just yeah. sleep in. You've got to go yeah. to bed earlier if you want to get that benefit. Yeah. So. in quantity. Uh, our last one is cortisol. Cortisol is usually considered a bad guy. Uh, because really its job is to, and I'm going to oversimplify this, but chew up muscle mass and turn it into blood sugar for your brain. I mean, in some in some ways, cortisol, I think its job, it, it kind of proves that your body prioritizes your brain over your biceps. Yeah. Because uh, when you're high enough stress levels for a long enough period of time, it will degrade uh, muscle proteins. And a lot of those amino acids end up going through gluconeogenesis in your liver and becoming blood sugar, which your brain runs on blood glucose. So uh, keeping cortisol down, a lot of people get super paranoid about it. Um, I've talked to some very prominent people in the industry who even took drugs like aminoglutethamide to try to oh, erase God. their cortisol, and they were very sorry that they did that because sometimes it doesn't bounce back, uh, at least not in a timely manner. And you better and, hope you never have a car accident or need major surgery because you're going to be in a world of hurt then too. Right. You're, you, we need cortisol to live. It's anti-inflammatory. Yeah. It allows your body to have a stress response. Um, but too much of it is also a problem. Now, sometimes I, I've heard people talk about, oh, don't lift for more than an hour. Your cortisol levels really start to climb after that. And you can, th that's over-exaggerated. Uh, yeah. th that's uh, my, what I would say is, um, stuff like meditation and fish oils, again, with the neural connection, the mind-body connection, but you can really reduce the cortisol response through stuff like meditation or taking fish oils. Calm down that cortisol. I mean, cortisol is coming from your adrenal glands, just like epi and norepi, which were earlier on our list, different parts of the gland. And these little pyramid-shaped glands sit on top of your kidneys, if you care. But the point being is... Um, Controlling cortisol could be a good thing. I do think it's it's also part of that middle-aged people. You'll see them get fatter through their trunk and midsection. And I think uh, that might be part of this uh, as well. But cortisol is usually considered a bad guy. But um, aside from, like I said, trying to control your stress with some meditation or, uh, like I said, the fish oil data is very interesting. Uh, I don't know. What do you have, Mike, about cortisol? Yeah, I always think of it as a, it's a time scale thing, right? So we don't want elevated cortisol levels for long periods of time. Like you mentioned, it's going to wreck all sorts of havoc. Um, Stu Phillips did a cool study looking at uh, hormones associated with, I think it was hypertrophy or strength, and cortisol was actually the top one. And at first you go, what the heck, that doesn't make any sense. But they were looking at hormones during the training process, 
And from that standpoint, it makes perfect sense. Intensity marker, right? right? Yep. Yeah. So if you go in and you train, you want to, you know, ideally, right, you know, a little bit before you hit the gym, woo, cortisol goes sky high, right? Because it's providing all the energy you need. It's very short-lived. The second you're done with training in a perfect world, right, you'd want to transition to having very low levels of cortisol. So you want it to be high when you're training to get fuel, all that kind of stuff. Um, but you want it to then drop down and be low once you're done training. Um, so I played around with and had clients do stuff like um, listening to biurnal beats or just deep breathing. I know, Lonnie, you've talked a lot about you know, sitting in your car, writing out your training book, You know, just trying to relax once you're done. Yeah, cool so your you jets. You want to do those transitions instead of you know run off and be stressed out the rest of your day. You, know, you want the stress when it's appropriate and then try to relax after that if you can. Right on. Yeah. Um, the downside of energy drinks, like we started the show, just to throw back to the beginning, is uh, when you do tickle your adrenal glands to kick out the adrenaline, uh, it's very possible that overdoing coffee and energy drinks could also raise cortisol. We, we, we constantly hear about metabolic damage, which I think gets or yeah. adrenal fatigue, and I think that gets bastardized. I'm not sure that's real in the way the fitness community thinks that's real, but I do think uh, overtraining and that kind of stuff, you'll see cortisol levels start to go up. You'll see a lesser response to the epi and norepi, and I think that's what's causing that metabolic derangement that you see in people that they've competed too hard or too long or they've overdone it. Uh, and they they just can't get themselves going again. I, I think that's part of it is they're not responding to the uh, epi and norepi, and they're they have too much cortisol going on because their body they've just constantly, you know, forced their adrenal glands to crank out uh, all of these hormones, the epi, norepi, and the cortisol. So yeah, they're kind of propping up their body by in essence using them to get function out. And if you look at sort of the common symptoms of adrenal fatigue, just to use the common vernacular, and overreaching or even acute overtraining syndrome, they're very similar. Yes, they are. So overreaching and adrenal fatigue, if you compare them, look almost identical. They do. Uh, Andy Fry. Uh, I always yep. found his last name funny because he looks at people who are essentially fried. Yeah. From, 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 and again, he looks at a lot of the weightlifter, the sympathetic type overtraining, not yep. like what the exhaustion you'll see in runners. Yeah, 40% drop in like adrenaline receptor number and that kind of stuff, you know, like beta 1, beta 2 adrenal receptors. Oh, man. So how can you possibly respond to your epi and norepi if you don't have receptors for it? You know, and we didn't even talk about that as much, but that's the other side of this whole equation. It's not just the level, the concentration of the hormone, but it's the tissues waiting there. You know, you think of the key and lock, the hormone's the key, the receptor's the lock waiting in the tissues. If you don't have a lot of locks waiting to be unlocked, you can't respond to the hormone well anyway. You know, so there's a lot to this whole thing, so... Yeah, in his two-week study there, they they reported after about, I think it was day seven or eight, that they just started feeling worse. And by the end of the study, they, all the subjects said they just felt like crap. <laughs> right. You know, I think he had them do 10 one-rep maxes a day for like a yeah. week and a half. It was yep. brutal. brutal. <laughs> oh, dude, really? Anyway. Okay, well, we've gone over just a little bit, but there's a rundown, some academic, some stuff on uh, athletics and doping and, and some practical applications, I hope, that can help some of our listeners as they, uh, you know, look under the hood. At, you know, hormones control the show. And so, uh, you know, knowledge is power, I guess. Yeah, awesome. Good stuff. All right, we'll be back on next week, everybody. Phil had some uh, family issues, and uh, 
we'll see you then. Yep. Hey, listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, Please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.